If you have your Bible, please open it to John chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, verses 16 through 21 of that chapter. When I was a young man, uh, I was deathly afraid of aliens. Not the same way that many in politics today are deathly afraid of aliens. I was afraid of alien aliens. I was afraid of people from outer space. And I don't know why. Maybe I watched one too many unsolved mysteries or something like that. But I was afraid of them. And the worst was at night. Because I, I had to go when I had to go to the bathroom. I had to traverse the entire length of our house. And most of that was our dining room in the middle. And there was a huge picture window. And I knew that out back... We had about a half an acre of grass and then a half an acre of weeds and then a half and then then the woods started and I knew that those were only fireflies. But I also knew that that would be a great way for the aliens to hide themselves and their little green eyes. And so I had to find a way to get from my room to the bathroom as quickly as possible. But there was one other problem, and that was the fact that my parents' room existed just beyond the dining room in the living room just off of the living room. So I had to do it quietly because I didn't want to wake them up. And so my solution was to run as quickly as I possibly could with as little steps as possible on my toes so that I wouldn't wake anybody up. This was a wonderful solution, I thought. It worked well. So it, it had three major benefits for me. One, my parents wouldn't wake up, and that was good because I didn't want to wake them up so that they would ask, why are you running through the house at 3 in the morning? Two, if I went quickly, the aliens were less likely to see me. Okay, so that was my eight-year-old mind or seven-year-old mind, however old I was. That was the thought that went through my mind. But I realize now that there was a third benefit. If an alien did actually see me, there's no way that that portly little kid doing a ballerina move throughout that dining room was the specimen that they were going to want to take home, right? They were not going to look at that and be like, this kid's the one. There's no way. They were going to leave that one alone. He's a special boy. So we will leave him to his own. So what this has led me to is I've thought a lot about aliens. For whatever reason, since I was a kid, I thought a lot about them. And uh, I have many, many, many reasons why they cannot exist today. I don't know if I believe that simply because it calms my fears uh, for them. But uh, I, I came up with many reasons. But I always thought something about aliens was really odd. And that is that they were supposedly this incredibly advanced people, right? They, they have to be way more advanced than us in every way, shape, or form. And yet, somehow, we still spot them every once in a while, right? Like, if we wanted to look on aborigines in, in Africa or in Australia, we could do it with satellites and never be seen by them. But for some reason, aliens can't manage this. They, they flicker on the lights when they shouldn't. And you know, you wonder if there's like one alien who's just not that smart, and he's the one who runs the lights, and they're like, ah, Bob did it again. So, you know... For some reason, they're always being seen. So do they purposefully show themselves, or is this like an accident, or, or what was the purpose of it? I don't know what thought me, got me thinking about that this week, but I realized how much people who have claimed to have seen aliens is a lot like we claiming to see Jesus, or claiming to know about Jesus. Jesus is something of an alien. Now, in the rest of the Gospels, they, they clearly point out that he was born in Bethlehem, or that he was raised in Nazareth. John, while not obscuring those facts, points at him having his origin elsewhere. His origin isn't even of this world. He, he is an alien in the sense that while fully human, he has come from elsewhere. Even in the verses that we are going to read today, it talks in verse 17 about God sending his son into the world. He was not of the world, but he came into the world. And what's more, just like alien encounters for most of us, we are to believe in them based on eyewitness testimony. And that is what has come to us in John. It's eyewitness testimony. 
I don't have many reasons to believe people when they claim that they've seen aliens. The question then comes to us is why are we to believe in this? What keeps people from believing in the gospel? What keeps people from actually entrusting themselves to Jesus? And, and what's more, why do some of you do the same? What is the purpose of Jesus even coming? These are the questions we would like to answer this morning. So if you would with me, please read from the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 16 of the third chapter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. First thing we want to answer today is why did Jesus come? And if you didn't pick it up from 316, you should have picked it up from 317. All of us can answer this. Jesus came to save the world. It is good news. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The world and God were at enmity. They were separated. They were enemies from one another. Since the fall, man has gone sideways from God, and the two have existed apart from one another. And there has been fighting between them ever since then. Man has created other gods in place of the one true and living God. We have created idols in our own lives, and in the history of mankind, this has happened. And so God has sent his son into the world that the world that has gone astray from him might be reconciled to him. Theologically, we call this atonement, which is a beautiful English word that means at one meant, which is actually where it came from, and reconciliation. So we are reconciled back to God. We have been separated from God, but Jesus has come to reconcile us again. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, we hear Paul talk about it like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. You can hear that, that separation, that old world that has been separated from God has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul says, we are ambassadors. We go around the world proclaiming to people that Jesus Christ has come to reconcile you to God, to bring you back to God. That fundamental break that has happened is now over. There is good news in Christ. He has come to save sinners. As Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinful people. Amen. So the coming of Jesus Christ is good news, but it is only good news 
There isn't condemnation here, as he says in verse 17. And I want to be emphatic with this. No one in this room, no one in mid-Michigan, no one in the world at no point in time in history has ever gone to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus. Okay? That's not the reason for their condemnation. The gospel of Christ is only good news, and the coming of Christ has only brought good things for humanity. There's a way of thinking about how evangelism happens and a way of thinking about how people are brought into the kingdom that can kind of make it seem as though presenting the gospel might be a bad thing. So there, there's a, a way of thinking theologically that's called inclusivism. And there are certain theologians, a very famous one is a Catholic theologian named Karl Rayner, and he came up with this idea of an anonymous Christian, and that was that, that God is going to save people by his mercy, but God can be merciful in many ways. And sometimes God is merciful for people who throw themselves on his mercy, even outside of proclaiming Jesus Christ and calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. And, and the good theologians who, who believe in this, although they are wrong in this, as we will talk about here in a second, they at least say that this isn't done just on the merits of anything. It's done on the merits of Christ, but nevertheless, Christ is not named amongst those people. Listen, what happens then for these people who are anonymous who, who don't know the name of Jesus Christ, who, who are standing on an island, who have never had the Bible, who have never had scriptures, and yet for some reason, some way, they are throwing themselves upon the mercy of God. What happens when missionaries show up and they begin to speak the gospel of Christ and they are arrogant and off-putting or they're confusing or simply wrong-headed? And what if that person who had entrusted himself to God's mercy listens to that gospel and says, that is no gospel at all. I don't want that. No, there are no isolated Switzerlands of neutrality with God. Everyone was condemned. There isn't people who stand there outside of Christ thinking, oh, well, I might be reconciled to God if God is just merciful to me. There are no one in this world who receives mercy outside of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So we must take the gospel to the nations, for it is only the good news that we have. Now this doesn't mean, by the way, that just because Jesus has come to save the world and he is only good news for people, so we are free to proclaim it to whomever and wherever we can. That doesn't mean that we don't speak of the bad news that accompanies it, and that is of condemnation. We speak of condemnation. We speak of hell. We talk of these things. We never do it with anger. We don't do it with joy. We don't do it with sort of an ironic smile. We don't do it with glee and happiness. We will speak of hell, and we will speak of destruction, and we will speak of condemnation. But we dare not do it in such a way that implies that we long for these things to happen. Ezekiel, as we talked about just last week, or several weeks ago, Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. We can rightly praise God for hell. And we can think that hell is deserving for those who go there. And even for those who end up in heaven, we can see hell and think, I deserve that. We can think that it is a good thing. We can think that it is a right thing. And we can think that it is a just thing. And we can still lament over the fact that it has to be. So we're all for preaching condemnation. We're all for proclaiming fire and brimstone from the pulpit. There's nothing wrong with that. But we do so in mercy. 
We do so because we care that there is grace presented with that. I remember, and I, I come back to this, I think this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've mentioned it, and if it gets old, tough. Uh, so we, we read several passages from history by famous people who wrote them. And I remember in eighth grade reading one of these, and it was one of those huge English lit anthology books where they just chop things apart that was good literature, but then they give them to you piecemeal, so you're like, this is not any good anymore. And they destroy your love of, of all things good. But one of the things that I was given in like eighth or ninth grade was sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the way it was presented to me and the way it was presented to our class was listen to how this man speaks. This is a Puritan. You know what Puritans are like. They all hate everybody. They're very angry and wrathful all the time. Listen to how Edwards speaks here. He speaks of condemnation. He speaks of, of God's wrath. And is this the kind of God you want to serve? But sinners in the hands of an angry God was never really about God's wrath. First and foremost, it is about the wrath that is there, but in the great pleasure and joy of God in keeping you from that wrath. Here's an excerpt. Your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution, your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web which could stop a falling rock. Were it not that so is the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you for one moment. You are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind. Listen, what Edwards means by that, and what we always ought to mean when we proclaim that there is condemnation and wrath is never a joy or a happiness at it, but it is that there is mercy. The reason why you are not in hell this moment is mercy. It is grace. Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And were it not for the great mercy of God, you would do no more to stop yourself from going in there than a bowling ball going through a spent Kleenex. It is because of God's good hand in Christ that we are not sent directly to hell. Christ has come to save the world. That immediately leads into a second question. Why don't some people believe? Why is it that some believe but others don't? Now, verse 18 seems to imply the opposite of what I, has, I have just said. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And I said that no one is sent to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus. Okay. Now, what he means there, if you read it, it's fairly circular. People who don't believe are condemned already, and they're condemned because they didn't believe. And they didn't believe because they were condemned. And they're condemned because they, they don't believe. 
What he means there is not so much that it is the effect of not believing is the reason why God is sending you to hell. Notice he says that they are condemned already. So it's not because they didn't believe that they are sent to hell, but they have rejected the only thing that could possibly have saved them. There is one lifeline for all of humanity, and that is Jesus Christ. There is no other way to get out of it. It's the same way we would say that the rejection of a life vest is not what condemned a drowning man to drown. If he rejects it, he rejects it. But it's not that act that kills him. It is the act of being in the water. It is the act of being in peril. And it is the act of his lungs filling with water that kills him. He simply has rejected the good option that has been given to him. We have a great gift in Jesus Christ, and only through Christ can we receive such a gift of God's love and favor instead of wrath and condemnation. And there is no gift that's greater than this. There's no news that's better. No matter how many African princes write to you and tell you that there's $5 million waiting for you if you will help them out, this is indeed better news than that, right? This is better news. Jesus offers you for nothing all of his kingdom. Remember, his dad... His dad can make the entire world with one word. If he wants to make more of it, he can. There is pleasures evermore at his right hand. But many reject this good news, perhaps because of the same reason you reject the Nigerian prince's offer, because you think that's too good to be true. I don't want to appear to be a fool. Others perhaps want some more proof for their faith. They say, well, I know John thinks that this happened this way, but I need a little bit more than that. Some have philosophical problems with the nature of God or the resurrection. They feel like the Bible is inherently contradictive. Others reject Christ because they think the Bible is filled with ethically and morally objectionable material. They look at the way that certain people are treated or they look at the genocides of the Old Testament and they say, I cannot follow a God who would send people to hell or I can't follow a God who would do this or that or another thing. Some people just reject Christianity, not so much explicitly, but simply in the way that they walk through their lives. They look at the Bible and they say, well, I don't really like this part, so I'm going to remove this. And I don't like that part, so I'm going to remove that. So they believe in something but it's only what they already thought was true. They already thought, this is the way it's good to live your life. I'm going to go in the Bible, and I'm going to get rid of the stuff that says I can't live that way, and I'm going to live that way. Maybe these are real reasons. At some level, these probably are real reasons. But John gives another very specific reason why they have rejected. Look at verse 19. When he says, and this is the judgment, realize that that word judgment is precisely the same kind of word. It's the verbal or the noun form of the same verb that we used for condemned earlier. This is the condemnation. They are condemned already. Why? This is the condemnation. John is going to explain to you why they are condemned. It's not just because they don't believe, but it is this. The light has come into the world. Jesus Christ has come into the world, and he sprays light everywhere. But people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. They are condemned simply because they've rejected the light. And what they have done is scurried into the darkness so that they can continue to do their evil works. Their works are evil, and so they don't want to be in the light. This is the picture of those like urban dystopia cop shows where they walk into the kitchen, which is filthy, and they throw on the lights, and you hear the scuttling of cockroaches everywhere. John says that is what people who don't believe are like. 
They're like those cockroaches moving away from the light. They don't want to be in the light. And so they scurry away so that they can continue to do their evil deeds in the dark. They can do it away from belief. They can do it away from the light and away from that which is good. Verse 20 enhances the picture a little bit. He says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. To stand in the light is to let everyone see exactly who you are. It is to have your sins exposed to the world and exposed to God. And they don't want that. They don't want their sins to be exposed because they don't want them to be called sins. They want to go on merrily doing all the evil that they've done in the dark. And so they hide from the light. People don't come to the light because they want to hold on to their evil. Because the Bible is unwilling to say anything but it is evil, it is wrong, it is sin, and it will be judged. In the end, the reason why people don't come is not because there's not enough proof. It's not because they don't have the philosophical means necessary to believe in what the Bible says. John says it very clearly. They don't come because their works are evil. They don't come for moral reasons. They come, they don't come, because they want to continue to do their evil things, and the Bible simply will not let them. I was reminded on Friday when we were reading through the book of Matthew, we were doing this in our devotionals, and in Matthew 13, all these parables that come from the mouth of Jesus, and these two short parables in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In each case, when the man finds what is the kingdom of God, what is he willing to do to gain it? He is willing to give up everything for it. He is willing to let go of his family. He is willing to let go of his job. He is willing to let go of especially his sin, that he might go and find this pearl of great value, this field to be bought that has the great treasure in it. The kingdom of God is worth giving up your whole life for. And you must give yourself over to Christ and what he calls you to do. When he tells you to do something, you are to do it. When he says, do this, you do it. When he says, do that, you do it. And he says, don't do this, we don't do it. Otherwise, we are only doing what unbelievers do. And it doesn't mean that you're an unbeliever, but it does mean you're acting like one. If you don't want to do what Christ tells you to do, if you want to hold on to your sin, you are acting, as Jesus might say, like a Gentile or a tax collector. The atheist doesn't want to give up his imagined self-reliance. Men don't want to give up sexual lust. Capitalists don't want to give up on their greed. Racists don't want to give up on their superiority. Those in good places don't want to worry about justice for others. Those who are angry long to foam at the mouth. Those who pride themselves in gossip don't want to give up the juicy good news. All of these things People hang on to their sin and they refuse to come into the light because the light exposes that as sin and it calls for you to give it up. Why do people pull apart the Bible? I was reminded a couple weeks ago when we entered into John 3.16, somebody had asked me, Pastor, where does, in your scripture, what is your thought upon where Jesus' words end and where, where John's begin? And in many of your Bibles, you have red letters I don't know how they came up with red for that. Red for blood, I suppose. 
very creative. You have red letters to show you where Jesus' words are. And in my Bible, we don't have quotation marks at the end of verse 15, but we have them at the beginning of verse 16, which means whoever was speaking at verse 15 continues to speak at verse 16. And so my Bible, the ESV, has Jesus' quotation going all the way down through the end of verse 21, but it becomes very difficult to tell where Jesus' words begin and end. What some people want to do is say, oh, but the red letters, the red letters are so important. It's very difficult to tell because Greek didn't include any sort of what we call diacritical marks. There are no quotation marks. And it's very difficult to tell where Jesus stops speaking or where John starts speaking. And it's made even more difficult because Jesus, frankly, sounds a lot like John. I think that's the point. It doesn't matter where Jesus stops speaking and where John starts speaking because John is speaking for Jesus and Jesus is speaking through John and it's all the one and the same. You can't pull apart the Bible. You can't say this part is good, this part is not. It's all one word that is given to us. It doesn't matter where it starts. It doesn't matter where it stops. You can't pick and choose apart the Bible because all you're going to do is pick and choose the parts that you like. There is no light exposing your sin. There is no coming to the light. It's just another way for people to hold on to their sin. And that brings us to the third question. That is, why does anyone then believe? When you read verse 21, you can be led to a false conclusion, which is devastating. He says in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. And it's very easy to think, based off of the comparison with those who are wicked, that those who do what is good is proclaiming to us that there are two different kinds of people, that believers who come to the light are righteous and noble and holy, that they are somehow of a different breed and class than everybody else. The unbelievers are wicked and nasty and dirty, but those who come to the light are automatically, by the fact that they've come to the light, good and noble, kind-hearted people. Thinking that you are fundamentally different from those who do not believe can devastate the gospel because, number two, it means that our salvation is given to us because of who we are and what we do. The problem comes in this little expression, he does what is true, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. What does that mean? We automatically think, oh, that means that you're doing what is right, you're doing what is good, you're doing the things that are commanded of you, you're a noble and holy person. John, thankfully, uses almost the exact same expression in one other place and in only one other place in all of his writings, and that is in 1 John chapter 1. And we know that this is of the same sort of essence because also in John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we have this beautiful interplay between light and dark, the same that we have here in 3, 16 through 21. Listen to John, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not, and here's that, that phrase, we do not practice the truth. Now, in English, those phrases don't sound alike. In Greek, they're really, really close to being identical. They don't do what is true. They don't practice the truth. Here's what he's saying. God is in heaven, and God is light. And because God is pure and unadulterated light, there can be no darkness in him. And if you claim to be near that light, but you are walking in darkness, you are clearly lying. Okay, And you are not, as he says, practicing the truth. You're not doing what is true. Now that, again, makes it seem like 
What John is saying is that you always and forevermore do everything perfectly when you walk in line with the gospel and you walk in line with the light, that you are never doing wrong. But that is not what he means because listen to how he talks in verses 7 through 10. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John is very clear that walking in the light, doing the light, or doing the truth, does not mean, it does not mean that you are sinless. It doesn't mean claiming you're sinless. It can't possibly mean that because he talks immediately about walking in the light means confessing your sin. It means making everyone know that you are not perfect. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. We cannot possibly walk in the truth and think that we are whole before God. So what does it mean? What does it mean in John 1 or John 3.20 when it says, 3.21, excuse me, when it says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. It means precisely what the cockroaches don't want to have happen. That those who believe come to the truth because they want their sin exposed. They, they are not holy. They're not righteous. But they want to be. They desire to have all of the sin done away with. They desire to know those things that are offensive to God and to have them removed from their lives. They desire to know what their sins are so that they might be cast as far as the east is from the west. They sound like David and not Saul. Saul, when confronted with his sins, say, well, it's not really sin, you know. I, I did all these good things, and I don't know why you're complaining to me, Samuel. And really, honestly, I did, I did pretty well here, and, and I frankly don't understand what your big problem is. And David says, oh, no, I've sinned when Nathan confronts him. When David hears, his heart is broken over his own sin, and he says this in Psalm 51, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit." To be one who does what is true is to be one who desires for God to show them their sin so that God might take that sin away. It doesn't mean being sinless. It means that you're not afraid of what the light gives you. So, read your scripture, friends. Don't read scriptures to hear about how everyone else is sinful. Read scripture to hear how you are sinful. Read scripture to see and ask God to show you your own sin, that you might be right before him, so that you might have your sin cleansed and taken away from you. And allow others to speak to you about your sin. This is why the Bible is so emphatic about us gathering together. This is why when Paul writes his letters, he writes them to churches, people who come together to gather together, to be in covenant and faithful to one another, so that we can help remove one another's sins so that we can rightfully confess our sins to one another and have us upheld by one another and say, God, in Jesus Christ, has forgiven you even though you are sinful. 
so that we can have people look at our lives after their reading of Scripture and say, Brother, I think you need help here. People who run from things like that may or may not be believers, but they are acting like unbelievers. They want their sins to be hidden from the world so that they might continue in them. The question is then, how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get to be people who are naturally like cockroaches and hiding from the light to people who want to be exposed to the light? John ends by saying this, so that it may be clearly seen. This is the type of people that they are. They come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that what his works have been, that his works, the person who comes to the light, his works have been carried out in God. It is a very odd expression. An old scholar named Westcott says that we do these things in union with him and therefore by his power. Given the discussion that we had in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, about how God the Spirit comes to you and he enlivens you and he sprinkles you with clean water and cleanses you, I have no doubt that what this means is the people who come to the light to be exposed, knowing that they're sinful, knowing the only way that that sin can be removed from them is through Jesus Christ, the way you get from point A to point B is by the work of the Spirit in you, so that you will be rightly seen to say, the only reason I've come to the light, the only reason I am able and willing to stand in the light, the only reason I'm willing to have my sins exposed is because the Spirit of God is working in me to show that the power is all from God and not from ourselves. So all of our good works, all of the, the progress that we make in sanctification to be holy, 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 even as God is holy, 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 is only done because of what God has wrought in us. So friends, go to the light so that your sins might be exposed. Read scripture. Ask people to help you see the sin in your own life so that you might be able to have that sin removed and cleansed by Jesus Christ. People often don't come to the light because they're, they're frankly scared. They think that if they confess their sins, they're going to be embarrassed. They'll be singled out for their sin. They'll be laughed at because of their foolishness or their weakness. They're scared, frankly, that they're going to be judged, that people who seem, and I want to stress the word seem, to have it all together, will haughtily sneer at them, or that Jesus simply won't do what he says he will do. That you will come forward and confess your sin, and you will still be condemned for it. Or they're scared that they will be all alone, that there will be no one there with them, and that even God himself will leave them isolated and stranded. These are real fears. You have probably felt them before. If you have not, you probably haven't confessed enough of your sins to people before. But they are just fears. They're not the truth. Like I said, when I was a kid, I was terrified of aliens. At night, I was, I was terrified of them. It kept me up at night. One of the reasons why I had to go to the bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning is I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. For whatever reason, I don't know, I was terrified, but there was something that drove that fear away. And even though that fear would return, every day it was driven away by this one thing. You know what that one thing was? It's the same thing that drives my kids' fear away. It's the morning. I was never afraid to go back in those woods and play. I spent a huge portion of time back in those weeds playing. I was never afraid an alien was going to pop up and take me in the middle of the day. Being in the dark... Being in the dark enhances all of your fear. 
being in the dark will always be a lie that will keep those fears in place. Come to the light so that your sins might be exposed and that Christ might forgive them. Do not huddle in fear anymore. For the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Let us pray. And Father, we are indeed sinful before you. We have done wrong, each and every one of us, and we are fully worthy of your condemnation. But we do plead with you on behalf of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the Spirit and his work in us, that you would cleanse us from our sins, that you would remove them from us as far as the east is from the west, so that we might walk holy and blameless before you. Let us linger in the dark no longer, Father, but pull your people into the light so that your mercy, love, and forgiveness might be known to all and that through your work in us you might receive great glory. We pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.